Believe it or not, the first virtual reality head-mounted displays were created in the 1960s. But despite technological process and hugely influential pop culture references like Tron and The Matrix, to me, it still all sounds a little bit sci-fi. But according to today's guests, our augmented future is just around the corner. I think it'll be ubiquitous. I think we will be using it non-destructively in the majority of cases. I.e. it won't be something that um, distracts us. We just put it on in the morning, whatever format they may be, or we'll integrate it and it will be everything from concerts to, uh, to our workplace. In today's episode, we'll be investigating the acronym-filled world of AR, VR, MR, and of course... XR, whatever that is, to find out why every gamer's favourite tech is breaking into the mainstream, which organisations are already championing augmented experiences, and what spatial internet, whatever that means, might mean for the way we perceive the world. All that and much more. I'm Michael Bird, and this is Technology Untangled. Sci-fi aside, the contemporary VR story really kicked off in 2007 with Google Street View. Since then, there have been some pivotal hardware advances. The Oculus Rift VR headset was funded on Kickstarter in 2012 and was soon followed by a series of quirky headsets like the HTC Vive and Valve Index. AR has absolutely rocketed into the mainstream thanks to games like Pokemon Go, but we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So before I go off on one about the latest Charizard I caught, we better get some base definitions out of the way. Like what on earth is AR, VR, MR and XR anyway? So for that, I called on HPE Chief Technologist, Matt Armstrong Barnes. So the first one is virtual reality. This is where you put a headset on and you are completely immersed in the reality that you're in, it's completely created by a computer. So you're in an environment, you can move around in it. And if you think about it, it's probably best described in terms of gaming so that you can move around, you can do all that kind of good stuff. When it comes to augmented reality, this is how I take what is really happening around me and apply something into that reality. The best example being Pokemon Go. So I can take my mobile phone out, I can move it around and then I can see what the camera on the mobile phone can see, but then it can also overlay digital creations into that world. And mixed reality is a hybrid of the two. So in this world, what I've got is a computer generated reality, but one where I can physically interact with things. So if you think back to the gaming scenario here, I can move around in my environment. I can pick up a gun and I can point it at things and I can shoot them. There have been a number of sort of famous theme parks that have gone down this route with uh, The Void, which was the Star Trek one, where you had a completely augmented environment, but you could pick up guns, you could move around, you could touch physical things, you could feel them in your hand. So those are the three main types of the way that we're seeing reality being changed by bringing in digital environments. But the acronyms, 
don't stop there. XR is everything that brings those three realities together. That's Lauren Dyer, Director of Strategic Partnership at Dimension Studio. We are a new breed of production company. We specifically focus on XR content and real-time production. Our remit and why people come to us the most is our creation of virtual humans, virtual worlds, virtual production using real-time engines. So AR, VR and MR, all under kind of one term. And their virtual production um, is a bit of a new one to the XR game. Relatively speaking, I suppose, uh, most people started realizing what that was after the Mandalorian show on Disney. And that can be anything from virtual previs, scene creation, um, to the really big LED stage shoots. And that's also a real-time workflow that enables people um, to create content for film or even just, you know, for YouTube. But it gives you the best of both worlds. It's the flexibility of the visual effects process and pipeline, but with the immediacy of realism of actual photography. And I think that's why virtual production is probably one of the most exciting areas um, within XR at the moment. We'll hear about some of Dimension's incredible projects later on. So we've all known about VR and AR for a fairly long time. So why has virtual reality only become a literal reality in the past decade? The key one is cost. The cost of obtaining the equipment required to run a virtual environment is coming down significantly. Also the size. So as we know, those are the two main factors of things that happen in in the technology landscape. Things start being big and then they slowly get smaller over time. And a lot of the time they become cheaper. In the VR space, there are certain physical constraints around how small a headset can get because of the way that human eyes have to interact with screens. So we're probably going about as small as we can, but we are still talking about expensive devices that we need to wear. So yeah, big, clunky and expensive. Not the greatest combination. I thought that Ready Player One style haptic suits were just around the corner. So to find out exactly how long I'll have to wait to get my hands on one of those, I called up Alex Haddock. My name's uh, Alex Haddock. I'm a Chief Technologist here for Hewlett Packard Enterprise in the UK. I'm in our MDI segment with a focus on uh, manufacturing, retail and pharmaceutical. So you've got virtual reality headsets. The, the common ones there are things like the Oculus Quest, which is a mobile-based solution. Uh, and then you have larger devices, um, anything from, I think the Valve Index is currently uh, the gold standard of VR at the moment. But for AR and mixed reality, then actually most of us have already got them. There are phones. They're probably the most commonly used devices. And then you have some specialist things like uh, Microsoft's HoloLens 2, still currently aimed very much at the um, industry side of things. Do you need quite a beefy computer to be able to use VR, certainly from a gaming perspective? Depends on the game you're playing. I think the, probably the majority of VR games that are being played by people today are, are actually probably more mobile VR games. Those things that run on the Oculus Quest, which is a, a quite high quality, but relatively low cost all-in-one solution, uh, untethered. But if you start to look at a tethered device, you could go with a PlayStation 4 and their current VR or thousands of pounds of NVIDIA GeForce card and um, and the Valve Index, which itself I think is £800 just for the headset. I'm sorry, nearly a grand just for a headset, plus I need a gaming rig to run it. 
Matt, why are they so expensive? You do need some quite strong processing capability that's going to make the experience as best as possible. If I give you an example, we're talking about 4K TV, you know, very high quality TV. We need grunty processing capability to run that on a flat screen that I'm going to run games associated with. When it comes to virtual reality, not only do I need that, but I need two because I've got one per screen very close to my eyes. The second one is they need to run at a higher frame rate than you do on a traditional screen. So if you have any jitter, you know, so as you move around, the frame rate judders, it can give you motion sickness. Now, forget the motion sickness. I just feel dizzy thinking about that price. VR needs some pretty specific specialist and expensive equipment. But right now, AR is already accessible on our phones. And Dimensions' Lauren Dyer says that consumer expectations are finally becoming a reality. Most people have an AR-enabled handset, which for a lot of people for a long time was a bit of a pipe dream to have something so incredibly powerful in your pocket that would enable you to connect to the world around you in you know wonderful ways you know you have a look at google maps is i suppose is a prime example and street view um, and how they do it in ar and you know google ar is an exciting thing and then onto the social media platforms it being ever present so it doesn't feel like a barrier to entry anymore of like oh i don't have that app I can't do that experience. A lot of it now is web powered and we've really seen that transformation in the last 24 months, I suppose. So on the one side, consumers have got a powerful AR device in their pockets. And on the other side, the entertainment industry has been quietly making huge advances in mixed reality production processes from fake armies to alien landscapes. So I think you are seeing that poster historical visual effects departments sitting in off to one side, they're now much more involved in the creative process. For the Mandalorian, those worlds didn't exist. They needed to be created. So the next evolution of that is, let's say I want to do a battle scene. You don't need all of the physical people in a battle scene because you can create them in the background. And if you look at there's quite a lot of things happening in the AI world around people moving around in battle scenes, etc. So as a result, they're not static, they're moving. So you can have a complete army generated behind somebody that just isn't there. We could go into what's going to happen to the TV extra or the movie extra in terms of having those background scenes or what's going to happen to on-location filming because The Mandalorian couldn't film on location. So as a result, it just completely filmed in a computer-generated environment. Crazy stuff, but that's not just the reserve of movies, because when a new type of consumer experience is conceived, you know that savvy brands and marketers cannot be far behind. Lauren from Dimension tells us about an MR experience with H&M that turned the traditional fashion lookbook on its head. This was a, an eight-wall web AR project, 
And H&M and Simone Rocha collaboration was brought to life using an amazing collaboration um, of pop-up prints by a painter called Faye Weiwei. And using volumetric video, we were able to collaborate the collection as an imaginative and beautiful pop-up book. It was the kind of first in, in a fashion innovation within Web AR, I suppose. Users were invited to scan QR codes in a physical pop-up book, uh, mailed out all around the world. And these um, character performances brought to life in the scene, um, these little tiny performances on your desktop, modeling the collection completely in AR. And each garment in the collection um, was shown in such detail because how we shot it volumetrically, you get such a wonderful and authentic movement to fabric and performance. Um, we had Helen Bonham Carter here in London and yeah, just quite a magical experience brought to life by the power of web AR. You mentioned volumetric video. I, of course, know what it is. But for maybe, <laughs> maybe for our listeners who don't know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. For us, volumetric is kind of redefined a new era of creating content. But in essence, uh, volumetric capture is a photorealistic uh, one-to-one replica of a performance. We use a 360 uh, rig of an array of cameras that enables us to create a 3D video file uh, for output. And then this can be rendered out into engines uh, like Unreal or Unity or even broadcast engines to enable a performance that then can be viewed either as the controller in the broadcast or as the viewer in XR. And this can be viewed in the complete 360 angle. So that kind of multi-angle experience of a performing human, whatever that is, we've been very fortunate to capture an array of people from Andy Murray all the way through to, you know, people like Madonna um, and Sam Smith. So We'll link you up to some of these projects in the show notes because the volumetric capture is absolutely out of this world. Now, you might be thinking, hang on, Michael, haven't we been able to create these digital models of people for a fairly long time? And uh, well, yeah, you'd be correct. But Dimensions Techniques have built upon the traditional green screen and motion capture process to produce these digital doubles at lightning speed. We do have a green screen style studio with 106 cameras shooting in RGB and infer as well. So we basically get all the data collection points when we're shooting, which gets rendered out into uh, our system. And you're able to see a pretty much real time performance of that human at that time. So we have playback uh, screens where you know you can um, see it pretty much straight after once it's been shot. So we have like a capture space of around eight meters where we can capture multiple people at once, um, which is really good if we're doing a dual performance or maybe a sword fight or something. And then when we need to, we prop replace. So the art of prop replacement is when we've got very thin stiletto heels or sunglasses or people do wear actual glasses, we're able to recreate those in post and then you know implement them back onto that asset afterwards and then output them again into that 3D format that we were talking about earlier. So there's quite a lot of art that goes into creating volumetric it isn't just a standard um, shoot and go but the good thing is it's relatively quick in the grander scheme of things in terms of coming to the studio and shooting or us driving our mobile truck to come to the talent pretty cool stuff eh and i'm noticing a distinct lack of ping pong balls glued to bright green unitards which does sound like a much slicker process 
we created a mobile rig um, pop-up specifically uh, to look at sporting events and you know when we need to get to really high profile talent that's been a really great way to get them into the rig and they don't have to put on a bodysuit they don't have to put on lots of dots on, on them like what we've seen all the ping pong balls that we've seen previously we don't need to do that so to get all those data points they step in, you know, we don't need long with the talent, you know, we could have anything as little as 15 minutes with them all the way, you know, to eight hours. But once it's shot, it's, it's very much like a linear, linear piece um, of content of any film that you would shoot. So you choose the shot shots that you want we render them out um, and then deliver them with whatever uh, distribution is required and that's the great thing about web ar is that we've got a really good pipeline to get into you know everything in xr but specifically web ar it can be quite a quick turnaround you know most people want projects between you know the four to eight week window which you know allows us to yeah move quite quickly a four to eight week turnaround for any enterprise marketing project is impressive, let alone a walking, talking digital double. But Lauren says that she can do even better, as in delivering an MR experience instantaneously better. Because that portable rig she mentioned, that's just one of many feathers in Dimension's technological cap. Eurosport Cube, um is an amazing showcase of quite a lot of a lot of research and innovation from the team um, and build up in our in our work in virtual production. This particular studio creation was a four by four meter cube made up of over four million LED pixels. The cube is completely customizable, so all aspects of the scene, the lighting can be completely controlled. Opening up a window and setting the text on a ticker to the person within the studio being able to talk to someone live fully there. And I think, you know, in a lot of these pundit studios that we see on Match of the Day or on Eurosport where, you know, people are talking to the athletes before or after or during, they're often on blue or green screen, which it's very difficult for them to understand the position in space. There's a lot of mistakes that happen and there was a lot of improvements that needed to be made in that area. And I think, and this virtual studio was super innovative at its time because it provides provided an in-depth analysis and visualization of the sporting action while speaking to these uh, athletes in real time. Um, and it really connected players with the hosts. And, and we, we did it for the New York uh, US Open last year uh, with guests and hosts and athletes and experts from lots of different places in the world. And I think this kind of element of a smart stage rather than presenting on a green screen environment is really successful because it truly creates that virtual world where it connect, connects them you know these players that appear virtually in the cube have direct eye contact with the host and this kind of really rapid turnaround time beaming in players for these quick uh, mixed reality interviews was really exciting and they're really finding that these live interviews with players all in this lovely environment um, that's well lit and well placed and bringing the action there with these kind of holographic beam-ins of, of these people uh, and athletes. It feels very Star Trek-esque, you know, it's a bit it's a bit fun and it's a bit, you know, crazy and bonkers, but it also is very current and it has an incredible place. Crazy, fun and bonkers sounds about right. And with adjectives like that, some might wonder whether mixed reality studios are one-off novelties or whether they'll have any real staying power. 
we're seeing quite a lot of inquiries of, of broadcasters wanting to create a similar vibe or a similar setup of virtual studio purely because it does enable the fans to be closer to the action. It also enables the people doing the shows at the time just to have a lot more control of the space. And most importantly, it just looks really great. It looks really slick. You don't really go, oh, they've put holograms there or oh, they've, they've used an LED screen there. It just feels like a really well-built studio. And it's kind of how playback and how pundits and how uh, sports commentary should be for the future, really. So we should definitely expect to see more players beaming into the Eurosport cube in the future. And Lauren says it won't be long before we see all kinds of brands and organisations taking advantage of XR techniques. Over the last decade, specifically in the XR community, I feel that KPIs have been quite difficult to measure. What are the incentives to, to brands in particular working with us in, in the XR space? I think um, cost and time savings are probably the, the most high up on the priority and list in, in during pandemic times. This has been massively seen by, by brands wanting to create experiences in a really cost efficient way or they want to get stuff out guerrilla style or they want to get stuff out quickly and XR specifically I suppose AR in, in that bucket is has been a great way of engaging and creating participation and I suppose that is quite a key um, frame for a lot of brands during this time and when you add a layer of interactivity to it it becomes a lot more exciting and the entertainment value of it you know is is not just about being a gimmick but it's it's allowing that invaluable and memorable moment with the consumer and the brand so we know that ar and vr have absolutely staked their claim in gaming and it sounds like it's only a matter of time before mr backdrops and xr experiences become a staple in the entertainment industry quite aside from indulging our fantasies and escaping reality alex haddock reckons these technologies could also help us in some very tangible ways if you think of AR as something that's overlaying, I guess whilst it's still a consumer use, it's a business thing, it's very much that ability to sell your product by letting your consumer visualize in their own environment, for instance. But then as you get to mixed reality, that's where you start to see surgery is a great example, for instance, where you can have remote field hospitals with a relatively, somebody's pretty surgically trained, but not necessarily in that particular patient's issue and you can then have somebody millions of miles or thousands of miles away working collaboratively via mixed reality drawing on what the consultant is seeing in real time pointing out things that they know and also you know maintenance and repair when you when you have that capability for someone to go to site and visualize the blueprints of where things should be in front of their eyes where are the pipes are meant to be finding. So, that, you know, those kind of pieces are just invaluable. And, and for training as well, from my point of view and our point of view, just sitting at Zoom and Teams, just to be able to have a more interactive training will be a great thing. So I think the, the, the opportunities are boundless. Yeah, that sounds pretty interesting and also maybe a little more socially important than figuring out the best sofa placement. And for Matt Armstrong Barnes, medicine is also offering some pertinent use cases. In healthcare, where we see uh, the medical lockdown software devices, where they want to do offloading of augmented reality so that they can 
look at patients in a different way. I think there's going to be an evolution with things like the cryo-electron microscopes, which are starting to freeze and explode at an atomic level. And they're actually generating very high quality three-dimensional movies. So one of the best ways to interact with those is to step into them. You could do some accelerated drug discovery. Cryo-electron microscopes are very new themselves. The high-performance computing that you need in order to, to generate and process the images is quite comprehensive as well. So the next evolutionary step is to take all of that into a virtual world. Okay, so in theory, the tech is ready. So why aren't we seeing it yet? There's some complex imagery that we create. And in the medical sector, the cost of producing medical imagery is going down which means, of course, that we're producing more imagery. So we need to think about new ways of allowing people to interact with that imagery outside of taking basically something that could be viewed in a three-dimensional space and viewing it in a two-dimensional space. This technology could move there. Is it there yet? I don't believe so. And I think that's still driven by adoption by software companies, cost of the equipment, and the compute power that's needed to drive them. So if you think about, right, okay, well, I've got lots and lots of people working on this. They each need a high-end equivalent gaming PC just to drive it for one person. So if I've got hundreds of people, I need significant compute infrastructure to drive it. Let's say you're in a, we're in a big virtual meeting and we're all looking at each person's avatar. If at any stage, the quality of what they're consuming starts to degrade, it has physical impact on you. People start to feel nauseous, they feel dizzy. And then once that's happened, you need 15 to 20 minutes for your balance to reassert itself, obviously, which can have a significant impact on the quality and outcome of the business interaction. Headsets need substantial compute to make them truly viable in an industrial setting. So size is probably gonna be an issue for the foreseeable future, particularly in untethered options. But can the technology feasibly get any smaller? Well, Alex has got a little theory about that. He calls it... <clears throat> the Cambrian Explosion of Infrastructure. Over to you, Alex. One point you used to have the story of software eating hardware because everything was done software. We had general purpose CPUs. Then you could say, you could argue that we had some specialized hardware for graphics, GPUs, but actually they're relatively, from a computing point of view, pretty unspecialized themselves. So what you had is people would use their codes to then come to a task. However, as we've come into particularly um, things like photo processing, video playback, it becomes much more efficient to use specialized hardware to do that. And that's why you see such excitement about things like Apple's M1 chip. Actually, one of the reasons that as an ARM processor is fast, because it's got a lot of stuff dedicated to image processing or deep learning inference, for instance, built into it. So with all this in mind then, what kind of hardware do you think we can see coming out of this Cambrian explosion of infrastructure? I think in the end, what we'll see is just that ability to support much smaller devices. Um, I think that's going to be the primary goal as opposed to out-and-out -out power. So if you look at a HoloLens, 
one would expect they'll be able to fit in, in some of the size of my glasses in the next few years, I think, to do the kind of level of power we have now. And that suddenly makes it accessible. I mean, long term, could they do it in contact lenses? Or, I mean, if you look, if you want the extreme, look at what Elon Musk's company is doing with Neuralink. Now, that's not aimed at AR and VR today. That's aimed at using mind control to control things. But in the end, right, we know that uh, the visual cortex is just electrical stimulus. So perhaps one day we won't need to don anything to do this and be truly into a cyberpunk era. Well, I for one cannot wait. But for all this talk of hardware, Alex actually reckons the real game changers are going to be the usual suspects. AI and machine learning. Once you start overlaying detailed graphical images, and ideally in mixed reality, taking in the surroundings around you and doing things like depth measurements with LiDAR or cameras, all that is requiring machine learning and all the permutations of it, you know, down to deep learning inference to understand the environment and put the model together that makes sense of it. And so that's why it's key. And so whether that's been a pre-trained solution that is then rolled out, maybe um, like Siri to your phone, a Google Assistant where, where it's kind of the model's been trained, it's been rolled out and it can do stuff by itself. Or with things like Neuromorphic, which will then have the potential, I think Intel's shown, where you can actually do some basic adaptation on chip so you don't necessarily have to retrain for everything it can learn a little bit we're not talking uh terminator level here but we're talking well i'm not i've never seen four blocks before but i can work out that four blocks is like one more than three blocks so i can incorporate that locally without getting retrained so will this be a little bit a little bit like i don't know not extreme edge computing but if they're going to be used for assisting all that kind of stuff do you see that element of it that kind of edge computing element yeah, I mean, edge computing is such a big, a big area. So you've got the industrial edge, which of course is like fridges and oil rigs and uh, and stuff like that. You can maybe call it a human edge or uh, something along those lines. Just to be just to be clear, it's that. But I think absolutely, it's another edge technology that that will burgeon. By its very nature, it will need to do the majority of its work locally to you. We all know how well your mobile phone signal will drop just when you need it, even in, in, in these days when things are much better than they used to be. So I think the majority of compute will be going on locally. The question then is, where is it trained? So I think model development will still likely be in the cloud, or by the cloud, I mean sort of a large hyperscale cloud or a, a large corporate data center cloud. But then we have technologies like swarm learning that will likely become more and more important to, to training things that are visually, visually based. We've heard a lot about how tech might change in the near future in terms of innovation and accessibility. But at the core of this topic is the way that humans interact with the world around them. We never imagined the impact that video would have on the way we live and work. So will VR and AR be the next big shakeup? The costs of it are getting down to the point where it's much more widely usable. Think about drone flying, high-speed drone flying is done with people with high-quality cameras, high-speed connectivity, wearing headsets as they fly their drones around. So we're sort of seeing the technology becoming smaller and faster and better. Still a way to go before I think it's mainstream, because you could argue when it becomes much more consumable, why do I need to buy a TV? If I have the capability to interact with my physical environment, as well as my virtual environment, I can put a headset on, I can watch TV. So while I'm sitting there, I can be watching TV. I can look over, I can talk to my partner. 
about things that are happening in the TV series, all without taking off my massive goggles to then interact with someone who's physically next to me, because, you know, we're inherently sociable creatures. Perhaps I could then decide that I don't want to just watch a two-dimensional TV show because I might be choosing a different platform so I could then expand my environment out. I could sit perhaps with a bunch of friends and watch a movie together, even though we're in, in different parts of the planet. Video conferencing. We've all seen Kingsman, where they all sit around the table and they put the glasses on and they, they see, a, see an avatar of somebody who's sitting there and it makes the experience of interacting with them much more humanable. Is that the evolution of the boardroom experience where we're going to be speaking to people's avatars opposed to speaking to them personally? What about the future? I mean, do you, do you see standard office workers like you and I, do, do you see us getting rid of our laptops and screens and instead of that, you'll just have maybe a keyboard, mouse and a headset and the screens will be superimposed in front of you? I think it's possible. I guess it all comes down to need and, and cost uh, and, and acceptance. But I, I don't see why not. I mean, I personally don't like the idea today of typing on a virtual keyboard for very long. I like a physical keyboard. I think absolutely. And then anything that involves any degree of interaction with componentry or off-site work, I doubt we'll see a plumber or a boiler maintenance repairman or, or et cetera without such a thing in 10 years' time. Is there anything else that you think we'll be we'll be seeing in the future across all of you know ar vr mixed reality that we can't do today because of technological challenges or there's not been a i don't know a big uptake on it yeah i mean i think for me again it all it all boils down to how we get that visual input into our brains whether it's initially lenses that project it and then i or perhaps then something that beams onto your eye or ultimately, as I said, something that just does it directly into your brain. God, I mean, who knows? I think it's just going to grow and grow. So what do you think the future of this technology will be? Cast your mind maybe a decade or, or even further ahead. What, where do you see this technology going? I think it'll be ubiquitous. I think we will be using it non-destructively in the majority of cases. I, it won't be something that um, distracts us. We just put it on in the morning, whatever format they may be, or we'll integrate it, and it will be everything from concerts to uh, to our workplace. But we might not have to wait all that long. You see, way back in episode two of this season, we discussed the role of 5G as an enabler. Nokia's head of ecosystem and trend scouting, Leslie Shannon, mentioned the delicious sounding concept of splitting the chip. She believes that the devices of the future will work on small, inexpensive chips with minimum processing, meaning a way longer battery life. But excitingly, it doesn't stop there. So where does 5G play? Well, you still want processing. So what 5G does is it's the bridge, it's the connection. With its big bandwidth and low latency, it connects that minimum processing chip on the end device to servers sitting at the network edge. And so what this does is it gives you a better end device in terms of cost and scalability and heat generation and being something light that you might want to wear on your head while pairing it with 
far more powerful computing power than is available in the single chips that are that are in devices today. So I believe very firmly that by 2030 and powered by 5G, that our main interface with computing is no longer going to be two-dimensional screens that we relate to with touching and tapping or through a keyboard, but instead with head-mounted devices that we wear on our head. So what's the world going to look like through these rose-tinted headsets? The thing that excites me most about 5G is that it is going to enable the spatial internet. And the spatial internet is the the location of the information and entertainment that's in the internet, so it's in the digital world. Actually putting that together with the physical world around us. So And so that means creating a, a 3D digital map of the actual physical world and then hanging information and entertainment on it, like almost like hanging ornaments on a Christmas tree. So as you walk down a street, first with smartphones, but then eventually just with things that you wear on your head, glasses, you can see things like, oh, here's a restaurant review um, for this restaurant. And oh, here's a note that my friend left, you know, don't order the fish. But then, you know, it goes from just having kinds of informational sorts of things to then being able to repaint the world around you so that all the Physical structures are still there, so you're not going to trip over anything. And you're not going to step into the street in front of a speeding car that you can't see. But then the surfaces are repainted to, say, indicate what this something historical, like what did this place look like in 1850? Or to be a game. I want to be surrounded by having it look like I'm living in a Fortnite game. Thanks, Leslie. So there we have it. A whistle-stop tour of all the realities. We seem to be at some kind of tipping point into the mainstream with AR and VR. And VR tech is pretty much as powerful as it can be right now in both its tethered and untethered forms. But we're probably not going to see any kind of mass adoption until the size and price of headsets start to come down. And the biggest name in the alternate reality game right now is most definitely AR. It's already accessible through our devices, but what's going to take it to the next level is the way that organisations harness its capabilities and explore the possibilities beyond Pokemon capture and furniture decisions. Now, if you don't mind, I'm um, off to go and catch a Charizard and figure out where my new cipher's going to go. You have been listening to Technology Untangled. I'm your host, Michael Bird. And a huge thanks to today's brilliant guests, Matt Armstrong-Barnes, Lauren Dyer, Alex Haddock, and Leslie Shannon. And you can find more information in the show notes. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Isabel Pollard and Ryan Sutton, with sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett, and production support from Harry Morton, Alex Podmore, and Tom Clark. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.